We're looking at the Gospel of Luke and then we're going into the Acts of the Apostles because Luke is writing both of these books as two volumes telling one story. And so Luke is concerned with a few themes, one being the Holy Spirit, but the one that we want to look at alongside with the Holy Spirit is the one that you see on the back wall, and that's loving the least, the last, the lost. Because Luke, of all of the gospel writers, is very concerned with what we would call in our modern day and age, the marginalized Those that aren't included, those that are on the outside, those that we would consider misfits, lesser than, the least, the last, the lost. And we believe that, as we talked about last week, that humanity, God has created as if it was a big, giant puzzle. And it's been taking us thousands of years to figure this puzzle out, but we're slowly but surely, I think, maybe, uh, the church at least definitely is making some sort of progress in this puzzle. And what you have with a puzzle is you've got all these little tiny pieces, and some of them have an arm sticking out there, an arm sticking out there, and a notch encaved in there and a notch over there right and each piece is meant to have one other partner in which one arm perfectly fits into the notch and then this arm fits into that notch right and so you know you've got the right ones together because the arm goes in the notch and they they fit and and when you get the whole thing put together you realize that what the puzzle is creating is a picture that there's something there it's more than just shapes but there's something that is displaying when it all comes together But like human beings throughout history, and like me, probably like you too, unless you're superhuman, when you actually sit down to work on a puzzle on some rainy day, and you dump all of the pieces out upon the table, you sort of have this vague idea of where it's going, for you have the picture on the box, right? scaled way down but it's there on the box and so you sort of know that there are things that are supposed to go places so what do you do you start to take a piece and you take another piece you're like those have zero resemblance and you chuck them out and you you keep taking pieces until finally i found one these are two black pieces and they actually fit so i'll put them together and then what you begin to do is you realize oh here's two green ones and they fit and you put them over there and so you start finding oh black ones they okay and you start organizing right and before you know it you've got a couple little clusters of puzzle pieces that are fitting together and starting to create a picture but they're it's not all together yet like over here you might have the beginnings of a tree and over down here you might have the beginnings of what appears to be though you're not sure yet a bicycle, a red bicycle. And then over here, there's a cat or something. You can tell it's black, maybe a skunk. And so things, big difference, right? So things are beginning to come together, but yet the puzzle as a whole is not one. You've got the black pieces and the green pieces and the bike pieces. And this is what humanity's done for thousands and thousands of years as we try to get what god has made this image he has made and we connect with some people right and we find our buddies and our partners and we're good with them but then way over here there's a whole nother group that's very different different shapes and different color and different picture and and they're getting along over here and there's clusters and there's a lot of space in between each cluster and often as we're beginning to work on this we Take this piece, and we're, we're very zoned for these clusters, right? Like, it doesn't fit with the green tree, not with the red bike, not with the black cat. Must, what do you do with those pieces? You put them in that pile that's to visit later, right? The misfit pile. Oh, it has a place, but it hasn't found its place yet. And so we talked about how often we feel like misfits, That many of us have a story of being a misfit. We haven't quite found our cluster yet. Others of us have found our cluster. And the danger there is that we begin to look suspiciously at the other clusters and even more suspiciously at the misfits. All of this is just a big fancy picture for an awful word called exclusion. And Judaism was very big on exclusion at this time that Luke is writing, at the time that Jesus lived. Judaism was the Jewish religion, 
and the Gentiles was all the rest of the world. And the Gentiles threatened the Judaistic religion because the Gentiles were not monotheists. They were paganists. Uh, they did not worship on the Sabbath. They worked all week long. They did not eat kosher food. They ate pig and all sorts of things the Jews would have found disgusting. And... They did not circumcise their male babies like the Jews did. They found that a mutilation to the human male body. And so there were some very different points, some very different obvious points between Gentiles and Jews. And the Jews had these parties, namely, we know them, the Pharisees mostly, but they had a few parties that rose up to make sure that Jews kept those four distinguishing points and kept them perfectly so that no one would ever dare blend Gentile and Jew together. And so humanity has always, and in Jesus' time especially, had clusters. And so the Jews would leave out um, Gentiles and Samaritans, uh, the poor, sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. And by the way, sinner would often just denote a common worker or anybody who was not able to make it to Jerusalem and worship the proper way. They were sinners. Mostly that was financial disability. But nonetheless, if God loved you, he would bless you with money. So you're a sinner. And then also women. And women did not quite have the status that they are privileged with today. And fortunately enough, um, that is, right, we, uh, the church believes that we're all equal. But in Judaism, um, the women were not quite Gentiles and Samaritans. They were on the Jewish side, but they were also separated from the men. And Luke is very concerned with these parties, these excluded parties, the ones Judaism was excluding. He's writing and he's showing that Jesus and the church come onto the scene for the sole purpose. Well, many reasons. But one of the reasons Jesus and the church come on the scene is to bring the puzzle together. That one person at a time, the pieces will begin to be bridged. And this cluster over here will finally connect with this cluster and that cluster with this cluster. And soon the whole picture will be seen and the image of God would be complete. And so Luke, as our theologian, is saying that Jesus and the church are all about the inclusion of the misfits. Those pieces are going to find their place there with Jesus and his people. So what Luke does is he wants to show us how Jesus and the church include who Judaism excludes. So you'll see a huge emphasis in Luke's gospel on women. Women are often always paralleled, and we'll in fact see this tonight, with men. There'll be a story about a man or a parable about a man. It'll be immediately followed with a parable or a story about a woman. Luke is very much into equalizing. In fact, he has more good things to say about women followers than male followers. Uh, he has a great concern for Samaritans. Next week, we're going to be looking at a message called Samaritans are Good, which would have been shocking to the Jewish hearers. And uh, he, he has concern for the poor. So all these people, Luke is about bringing the church to realizing that Jesus's mission partly was to include the least, last, and lost. And so... All of that was summarized with a story by Dr. Seuss called The Sneetches. And if you've not heard, watched, read that story, read it. It is a great picture of exclusion and how it works and how some Sneetches had a gold star on their belly and they would not associate with the Sneetches with no star upon theirs. So that is what's going on. And Jesus is saying, hmm. No stars to make anybody better than the other. And then finally, we, um, our application, this is super important, which is why I feel like we had to recap this. Luke and Acts both start with a major emphasis on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon God's people. And so what we saw last week is that those whom the Holy Spirit fell upon were those who were driven to include the excluded, to give place to the misfits. And that is exactly what happens when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, is that he enters into these regions within our soul that we are terrified of visiting ourselves. These desolate, unconstructed places that are not habitable by anyone. We don't let anybody in there, so we keep our distance with people because there's too much shame and sin that have destroyed that. The Holy Spirit enters in and he takes that void and dark and empty place and he begins to construct it and to form it and to develop it. And he makes your soul habitable so that other people can now fit within our lives the holy spirit is the great expander he brings the presence of the god who created all people and cultures into us so that we can then embrace all people and cultures and so spirit-filled people are diverse inclusive loving all type of people people 
So the Holy Spirit is super important. And that launches us in now to Luke chapter 5 as we continue Luke's story about Jesus and loving the least, last, and lost. So what does it mean to include people? Well, you've heard this before. Jesus told us to be fishers of men. So he told his apostles. And that's what they're to do. Go fish for outcasts. Go give them a place. Those whom... The proper religious structure is not reaching. So let's look at it. Chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So getting into one of the boats which was Simon's, that's Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So what do we have here? Jesus is being pressed. He's out of room. I got to get in the boat, give myself some space so I can talk to the people, not be trampled to death. So he's teaching them from the boat. And in verse four, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So verses one to three. Jesus is on the boat fishing, not for fish, for followers, as he's teaching them. He's fishing. Then he has Simon Peter get on the boat, and he's asking him to launch out into the deep. Now Peter's turn to go fish, except the kind of fish he's used to, fishy fish, swimming fish. However, Jesus says something strange. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for catch. Well, Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. It's such an amazing catch. But when Simon Peter saw it, He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. I just gave you a little illustration of what you're going to do. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So they're called to be fishers of men. And this is the idea. We just go and, and catch the outcasts. Bring them in. Peter, just like you know your craft with your boat and those fish in the lake, you're going to go do that for people. And... As Jesus is in the boat at first, he's doing his own fishing. This is what he wants Peter to actually do. He then takes Peter out to sea and shows him, by way of example through things Peter already knows, what it is that Peter's supposed to do with people. So this whole catching of a great catch of fish is all designed to be an illustration. It's designed to be a demonstration, a walkthrough, a teaching to Peter of how he is to fish with other people. And I would believe that Luke is recording it the way he does so that the church looks at this. And as followers of Jesus, we get what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying, this is a model of how you're to go out into the world and fish for outcasts and the misfits and bring them in. So let's look at what Luke would have to say. How are we to become fishers of men? Well, there are five observations here. Five ways we are to be fishers of men. Number one. To be a fisher of outcasts, we are to break boundaries. We're to break boundaries. And that's often what is needed to reach outcasts. There's a great divide that separates us. You're to go and break that boundary and bring it down and say, there's no division between us. There's no separation. We're one. Well, look what Jesus does with them in verse 4. It says that when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, there's two things fishy about this, if you will. Um, getting better. You guys are a little slow this, this evening. There's two, there's two fishy things about this. First, it's daytime. 
Fishermen did not fish in the middle of the day. They fished towards dawn and dusk. Second, he told them to launch out into the deep, which is not where fishermen went. Fishermen fished closer to the shore where most of the fish were. So Jesus is breaking all the proper boundaries of proper fishing here. And he's telling them, don't be in shallow water, go into the deep water. Not at evening, but in the middle of the day. So in other words, Peter here is a little hesitant because he's like, "Uh, that's not how we do things around here. Don't you know the proper bounds of proper fishing are towards more like dawn in the shallow waters. And she's like, I know. I want you to break those bounds right now. I want you to go somewhere where you're less comfortable, somewhere where you've never been, to venture out to uncharted waters. And so Peter reluctantly and hesitantly, yet trustingly, does so. So number one, uh, to catch the outcasts, we must be people that are willing to go into deeper waters than we normally tread. Number two, persistence. Those who catch outcasts must be persistent. Look what Peter says in verse 5. He said, uh, we tried that all night, nothing happened. Now, that's how you and I often want to react when we actually have the motivation from the prompting of the Spirit to reach out to other people and bring them on the inside. Sometimes, you maybe you've tried this, you realize that they're very hesitant and resistant. And they don't accept your invitation. And they don't exactly consider you very welcoming. They're very distant and cold. Have you ever reached out to somebody and gotten that reaction? You thought like, oh, I'm going to be your savior. And then they're like totally not into your ideas of being with them. <laughs> like, tried everything. And we, we often quit. But what we need to learn is that persistence is key because sometimes people are so insecure and so felt on the outside and feel so threatened by people that are different than us, by insiders, that we need to see it over and over to be proven that you really do care about them and there's no ulterior motive to it. And so Peter's told to do something that has failed before. In fact, it failed all night. But do it again, Peter. This time, you will get your catch. So, number two is be persistent. Third way that we catch outcasts is through sacrifice. Five or six. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Okay, this is not cheap material. In fact, often there were partners in the fishing business because that way they could share equipment, equipment they couldn't quite afford on their own. And now the net's breaking. Great, thanks. We're obeying, and now our whole business is going down. Furthermore, we saw that the reason they were out of the boat and Jesus went into the boat was that they were cleaning their nets. They'd been in the dirty water all night. Now it's time to clean them so that they'll be ready to go next time. Well, great, Jesus. Now you re-dirtied our nets that we were so busy cleaning and purifying, and now they're breaking. And yet, I hear this attitude in the church all the time. They're too sinful. They're going to defile these people over here that are working so hard to follow Jesus. Or they're going to ruin stuff. They're breaking our system and our purity. Be careful with that attitude. Because it does take sacrifice. Sometimes it costs our time. Sometimes it costs our comfortable, neat, clean boundaries. Fourth way to catch outcasts is through community, not individually, community. In verse 7, we saw that as the nets were breaking, they signaled to their partners, help us, this is bigger than we can bear. And so is the case. Sometimes it is really hard to be the loner trying to reach loners. They look at you and think, oh, you're like me, a loner too. (laughs) But when the community comes around the person or around another community, it's like the nets of fish or the nets, the fishing nets closing around the fish and bringing them in. It's like a nice embrace. It's like arms. So a communal help that we're all in this together, that people don't see, oh, you're a nice chap. No, that the people of Jesus are wonderful people. And then fifth and final way to catch outcasts is in verse eight. Humility. So Peter, when he saw this, fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. There was this genuine humility, this genuine sense of, Who am I? I'm a misfit. I'm an outcast. I don't deserve to be brought on the inside of what Jesus is doing. Why are you reaching to me on the outside and bringing me inside? And so throughout Peter's 
fishing career, he keeps in mind, who, why, why depart from me? I'm sinful. I'm an outcast. And isn't our greatest fall that we too often forget that we too were misfits and outcasts before we were received in the family of Jesus? We look at people and think, well, maybe they'll shape up. Wait, what? Is that how Jesus came to you? Well, yeah, sure. Shape up, then we'll talk. But that's not at all how Jesus came to you. You were totally an outcast, totally unworthy. And yet he said, I want you on the inside. And this is what Peter is going to remember. And this is what we need to remember. And this is what we're going to see throughout. We're going to go much quicker through the next few texts. Uh, We're going to see this consistent pattern of people feeling this great sense of unworthiness. They know they're outsiders. And they can't believe they're welcome to become insiders. So here's the important thing to remember about fishing. Fish are always caught before they're cleaned. Fish are always, 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 always caught before they're cleaned. This is the mentality that we must continue to carry like Peter is this sense of awe and reverence for the fact that Jesus said, I want you on the inside. And you said, me, you should be departing from me and keeping me outside So let us never lose that sense and let us follow that sense of wonder as outsiders become insiders. Let us realize that you were included so that you can become an includer. You were embraced so that you can be one to embrace others. Insiders to make outsiders insiders. That's the whole reason among other God glorifying and heavenly experiential things. So let's look at it. Some examples of, so Jesus now shows Peter, calls him, you're going to be a fisher. Now we're going to watch Jesus in action as he leads the disciples into fishing examples. So we're going to watch Jesus fish all night. So let's go to chapter 5, verse 12. So while he was in one of the cities, 5, verse 12, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will... See, there's that unworthiness. He knows he doesn't deserve this. He knows that there's a great chance he'll say no. But if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus did not just say, okay, you're a leper. We're not supposed to talk. We're supposed to be completely separate. You have a colony way over there outside of town. Stay there. And they did. Lepers were very much outcasts. Jesus could have just said, whoa, buddy. Okay, you want to be healed? I can do that. Be healed. Go, go and wash in the water and you'll be good. But he didn't do that in this case. He did that in other cases. But in this case, when it's the most shocking, the most defiling, the most unclean, according to Judaism, the most unclean person you can possibly approach, he doesn't give a word, he gives his hand. And it says he stretched out his hand and touched the leper. And he was cleansed. And one of the great objections, of course, to living like this is, as Judaism would have thought, I can't touch him. If I touch him, I will become, they call it ceremonially unclean. And then you would have to live outside the village for the rest of the day and make offerings to become clean again. There's no way I'm going to become defiled and impure and unclean by touching him. And we said, there's no way I can be with these people because they're going to make me impure. They're going to make me unclean. I got to stay in my holiness. But wait a minute. What we learn is not that sinners have some sort of infection that we can catch. What we learn is that the Holy Spirit has given us a good infection that they need to catch. And that when Jesus touches the leper, he wasn't made unclean. The leper was made clean. And of course, I do not say this to say, like, everybody go and, you know, endanger yourselves. Remember that catching outcasts is meant to be done communally. And that when we do that in groups, there's great accountability and great power when we reach out and touch the unclean. And so their lesson there is that the Holy Spirit within you is greater than the sin within them. It wins. So another example, one day in verse 17, on one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. 
And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, you know this story well. And while he's in this house, surrounded by this circle of Pharisees and teachers of the law, there were friends of a paralyzed man who were bringing him on a stretcher and taking him to this house in order that Jesus can heal the paralyzed man. But when they get to the house, it says that they could not get in. It was so crammed and packed with people listening to Jesus teach. Now, ironically, it says that the power of the Lord was there to heal, yet the power of the Lord was not able to get outside the house to heal the paralyzed man outside. And furthermore, the the guy couldn't even get into the house if he wanted to, to get healed. And I wonder if we haven't made our own circle around Jesus in which other people are having a hard time getting inside and through. Whether, well, I'll let you bring your own examples. Now, the circle around Jesus is not necessarily wrong. The Pharisees and the scribes, by the way, they're not bad people yet in the story. They were desperately seeking Jesus. They wanted to hear from him. Their motive was, this guy's amazing, and I want to hear this teaching. And listen, when we make our circles, I'm not saying you're evil, and the intent of your heart is to be wicked and exclusive, because it's not. We gather around, and we try to be holy, and we press into Jesus, because we sincerely want Jesus, and we want all of him that we can get. And so we press in closer and closer, and the circle gets tighter and tighter, and less and less breachable. That's not a bad motive by any means. The problem is that we are ignorant to what happens in our pressing in. And that there are lepers on the outside wanting in. And we are so busy with our discussions about what Jesus had said that we don't notice the lepers. See, had the Pharisees and scribes turned around and said, wait, there's a guy that needs to come in right now. Had they done that, there's zero problem with the circle. But the circle had zero open ends. And the one who needed to get in most could not get in. That's the problem. Now, notice, the leper does not feel free to elbow his way in. I mean, he can't. He can't move, really. The leper, I'm sorry, the paralyzed man. He's not able to elbow his way in. And you know what? Frankly, he probably doesn't feel worthy of elbowing his way in. And you might look around and say, oh, they're free to come whenever they want. But in reality, what they see is not, oh, I'm free to come whenever I want. They see what a closely tight-knit group of people that have this strange vocabulary, sanctification, justification, rapture, resurrection, what in the world? And they have this strange way of living and thinking and amen, brother and sister. And like, what is, they do not feel welcome to come inside. It's not that they feel like you're hostile, but they feel foreign And if you've ever been a stranger in another country, you know that feeling. So it is, the burden is not on them to come on in. It's up to their fault. No, the burden is on us to every now and then look over our shoulder and realize who we need to extend an invitation to. Who we need to walk in because they can't walk on their own. And praise God that this paralyzed man has four friends who are able to carry the stretcher for him. Now, the friends could have easily been the type that said, too bad you can't get in. I want in on this and just barge their way in. They could have elbowed their way in. Strongest man wins, right? But they don't. They think, how do we get our paralyzed, excluded friend inside and healed? How do we do this? And beyond me, I don't know who thought of it, but they deserve a creativity award. And Decided, let's try the roof. Let's break the box and let's try another way in no one's thought of. And they do so. And of course, you know how the story goes. The man comes down into the midst of Jesus. He heals them. He heals him. And it says at the very end in verse 26, an amazement sees them all. They glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So two things I want to leave you with on this passage. Number one, if you are not seeing or you feel like church is getting boring or your Christianity is a little dry and extraordinary things have dried up, 
you're not excluding and you're excluding too much. You're not including enough. You're not fishing enough. Fishing outcast brings extraordinary things. Lame people walk. Second, notice that the friends who are trying to get the lame man inside don't just give up and say, we tried. It's that persistence we talked about. They used creative means to get the man inside. And those guys need to be, they're a picture of those of us who are willing to step out of the circle every now and then to find lame men to come in. And we often think, how in the world do you do that? These people are so different. They, there's just nothing at all alike between us. And I get that. And it's definitely a hard problem. But notice what they use. They use creativity. There's inventing going on here. There's, let's try something we haven't tried yet. Let's do something different. It might be costly to the house. But I think this might work. We might get kicked out by the host because we ruined things. But it's a chance. We have a chance. Yes, it's high risk. But the creativity paid off. And the way that we are going to be able to include outcasts will never happen by doing the same rote repetition. Never happen. It's going to require on, the, on behalf of all of us the different creative areas God has given us to put our brains together and say, this is a different way we can maybe go about this. That's how we will be inclusive. So another example of Jesus fishing is verse 27, chapter 5. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And you can just see Levi. He's Matthew. You might know him as um, just doing the same thing. Tired of all the dirty looks he's getting because he's a tax collector. Tax collectors were seen as exploiters. They knew exactly how much you could afford to pay up. And there was no law what you were to collect. You collected what you sort of set. And so they're known as exploiters. Like, oh, I know you make a little more than him, so I'll charge a little more from you. Very unjust system. So Matthew is a creeper because he's an exploiter. Second, he's a betrayer. He's working for the Roman government, not for Israel. And he's also taking from Israel for the Roman government. How dare you trade sides? And then third, Matthew is unclean because he works for Gentiles, touches them, and is touching their coinage. And their coinage had idolatrous images on them. It, in fact, had Caesar's head and it said, this is the son of God on the coins. That's an idolatrous image. And the Jews were berserk about that. So Matthew is, Levi is in a very bad way when it comes to being included. <laughs> and so you can imagine, so tired of the dirty look, so tired of feeling like the foreigner and the outsider, the hated one, that it, by the time you're just so used to that, you're just putting your hand out to collect coins and you're expecting to feel the cold metal of coins from indifferent, hostile people. But this time he feels not the cold touch of coin, but the warm touch of a hand. As Jesus pulls him up from the table and says, follow me, Matthew, I want you. Me? So unworthy? And Matthew throws a party at his house, and Jesus comes over, and Matthew's friends, you can imagine what sort of riffraff they were, and they're all around, and the Pharisees come along, and they are the ones that protect the boundaries of Israel. So they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. A teacher of the law cannot associate with tax collectors. That's blurring the lines way too much. We need to keep them distinct and separate. Your puzzle piece belongs there. Theirs belongs there. So they come along and basically say that. And Jesus responds in verse 31 with this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So look, Pharisees, you obviously have it all together. You're well to do. You're, you're in good hands. I don't, you guys don't need me. These people do. You're on the inside already. They're on the outside. And I came for outsiders. I came for the sick. That's what he's saying. Um, then they question him about a couple things, but for time's sake, we're moving on to chapter six. Uh, it says in verse one on a Sabbath and then verse six of chapter six, it also says on another Sabbath. So Matt, uh, Matthew, um, Luke puts together two Sabbath stories. And in these cases, Jesus is threatening the Sabbath system. The Sabbath, the Jews were very rigid on because this keeps us distinct from Gentiles, from outsiders. Well, Jesus comes along and says, your Sabbath is so rigid that nobody that may want to be part of you can be part of you. This is keeping you way too distant from people. So he's relaxing their Sabbath rules to restore it to man's use. And so that other people can feel like, You guys aren't so high and mighty and different than us. 
So that's part of what's going on there. But um, we're going to keep moving because, you know, you're thinking only three chapters. Come on, Brandon. Mike had to do four. Well, Luke has long chapters, okay? These are like 50 verses each. So there's like five Matthew chapters. (laughs) All right. So thank you. So in verse 12, chapter 6, he went out to the mountain to pray. And then after he prayed all night, he came down. He selected the twelve. Twelve is an interesting number, isn't it? Why twelve? Lots of disciples, but twelve chosen ones to be his powered ones. Well, twelve mirrors the twelve tribes of Israel. The twelve tribes that have been scattered and lost. These twelve are in a sense being restored. Now, now some people that are very theologically astute are saying, you cannot be saying that. Because that's replacing Israel with the church. You're trying to say that the followers of Jesus are now the new 12 tribes of Israel and the other ones don't matter. No, I'm not saying that at all. This is not about replacing Israel. This is about expanding Israel. This is about making the borders become inclusive so that with the 12 tribes of Israel come the many nations of the Gentiles. That's what this is about. So if that flew over your head, don't worry. (laughs) Verse... um, We're going to move on here to chapter 7. Now, what we have in the rest of chapter 6 is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. You've heard the Sermon on the Mount from Mike and Matthew. Um, Luke's version is shorter. And basically what it is, it's the same sermon, except he takes out all the references toward the law. Like where Jesus says, I fulfill the law. You heard it said, do not murder. I say unto you, all those law references, he takes those out and just leaves it to the ethical references And so Luke is, in a way, saying this is the part that is fitting for Gentiles, for you and me. That's who he's reaching, Gentiles, in his gospel. Uh, So now, chapter 7, three more fishing examples. In chapter 7, verse 1, he heals the centurion's servant. Now, the centurion realized himself, I'm not worthy to have you come under the roof of my house, so don't come over to say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus marvels. Not even Israel has this kind of faith. Outsiders have better faith than insiders. And so he, with the word, heals, and the centurion's servant is healed. There, it's interesting, because the centurion is a Roman soldier. So this is a Gentile and an enemy. And yet Jesus says, I don't care. You're a human being. I'm going to heal And so there's inclusion there. In verse 11, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And now um, there's a woman, there's a funeral procession going on, and there's a woman whose only son had died. She's a widow, so she's in really bad shape because now her husband's gone and her only son is gone. She has no men to take care of her. And Jesus compassionately comes up and touches, um, this is the buyer, the... uh, the box carrying the dead body, which Jews not supposed to touch anything dead. So he's now unclean technically, but the man comes back to life and he restores him to his mother. That see right there, the story of a man followed by the story of a woman and that Jesus goes out of his way to reach someone that proper pious Jews wouldn't associate with women that they weren't married to. So Jesus here includes the women have a very important role too. And here, furthermore, the woman didn't have to petition his help. He sought it out. The centurion said, please. The woman had no clues even around. And Jesus just showed up. So faith does not necessarily equal healing. That shows us. Um, Verse 18, John the Baptist sends some disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? He basically answers, yes. Look at all the people I'm including in healing. The poor hear good news. And definitely am. And then in verse 36, the final part of chapter 7. We see that one of the Pharisees, verse 36, asked Jesus to eat with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, they're having a nice conversation about religious matters. I'm sure because a Pharisee cared a lot about that stuff. And, and they're having a nice chat over their nice food. And then a woman who's turned, we don't know what she does, but she's just turned a sinner. She, she has a reputation. Uh, she, she slithers into the house. And begins to weep on the feet of Jesus and pour costly ointment oil on his feet. And if this wasn't awkward enough, begins to dry all this with her hair. I would squirm a little bit. (laughs) Yet Jesus doesn't disgusting sinning woman. Feet are too holy for you. Not at all. But Simon is watching this. Simon the Pharisee. 
not Peter, but the Pharisee. He's saying to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is, and he would say to her not to do this. And so Jesus says to Simon, hey, Simon, can I say something? Be careful what you wish for. Yes, Jesus is a prophet, and he may not be judging the woman, but he can now read your thoughts, Simon. He's going to tell you something. He's like, if Jesus could really read thoughts, oh, did I say that? No, don't, don't read. No. So, so Simon, listen to this. There was a money lender who had two debtors. One owed him, um, they, they use a denarii here, but let's use American coinage. One owed $500. The other owed $5,000. Now, neither could pay. So the debtor decided to forgive both or the money loaner decided to give, forgive both. Which of the two, the one that owed 500 or the one that owed 5,000, do you think was the most grateful? Do you think was the one who loved the money loaner the most? And Simon's like, I guess the one with $5,000, obviously he's more grateful. And Jesus is like, exactly. When I came into your house, you didn't give me water for my feet. You didn't give me ointment for my head. You didn't greet me with a kiss. Customary things you weren't required to do, but it showed your great hospitality if you did. But since I got here, this woman has not ceased to do all three of those, kissing my feet, anointing my feet with ointment, and washing my feet with her own tears. Simon, here's the point. Verse 47. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And so the one that has the greatest debt, the one who knows their own unworthiness, has the most love for Jesus. And let's just erase right now a common misconception. We don't express our love for Jesus because we have it all together. It's precisely the opposite. We express our love for Jesus because we know that we do don't have it all together. That's the truth of it. People join the worship team not because they have their lives all together or because they're perfect examples of Jesus-like righteousness, but because they know how much they are messed up and unworthy. And so they just want to express their love to Jesus. People are in your Bible study group, not because they think that they have so much to offer you, but precisely because they know they need so much offered to them. And so we don't have to go around assuming that, you know, all of us here are perfect people. I'm the only unworthy one. No, the fifth lesson, remember, for catching outcasts is knowing your own humility, your own unworthiness, that I am forgiven and forgiven of much. So... With that said, the main thing we need in this inclusive, this loving the least, last, and lost, is we need a real sense of our own forgiveness so that we can become forgivers of others. And you know, one of the sources of exclusion is unforgiveness. We have nations that would rather rip each other apart rather than forgive each other for their wrongs. I mean, just, you know, just more recently, the whole situation in Palestine, you, you know what's been going on. One side fires, the other's like, well, we got to get revenge. They literally say that in the news. We just, all we want to do is exact revenge. Oh, that's all? Really? Because you know that revenge always escalates. And this is how wars happen. We just want revenge. But forgiveness means that I am giving something, right? Forgive. I am giving up my right to get even with you. That's forgiveness. I'm giving up that right. So that we can have a chance, at least an opportunity to open our arms for each other. Not our firearms, but our embraceive arms. And that's what God did to us. He didn't hold your sin against you and say, well, because of that sin, you see, there's this huge chasm and I'm going to keep you at that distance. He could have used your offenses against you to keep you distant, to exclude you, to keep you on the outside, to keep the star off your belly, whatever. Sneech you are. Instead, God forgave, and he said that that expanse and that debt, I do not demand revenge. I'm not going to get us even. I'm opening my arms instead. And that's how we're able to come inside. 
his forgiveness for us. And yet, now that we're on the inside, now that we have the circle and we're around the teachings of Jesus and there are paralyzed people out there trying to get in, we sit here and go, we don't have to forgive those that wronged us. Have you forgotten the great reversal that has happened to you? This is, we're going to summarize. This is the fastest version of the Sermon on the Mount you've ever heard. We're going to do it right now as our closing. In verse 20 of chapter 6, verse 20 of chapter 6, you have the great reversal. Listen to this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. You're going to be inheriting a lot. (laughs) 21. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hurt you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Look, all this bad stuff is happening to you, all these horrible conditions. It's going to be reversed for you. And more so... Those that are your oppressors, your excluders, the ones keeping you on the outside, they're going to have it coming to them too. Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich for what you have received, for you have already received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall go hungry. And he goes on. The entire scene is getting flip-flopped. The poor will be rich and the rich will be poor. The hungry will be full and the full will be hungry. And I, I shared this passage when uh, this summer we were at Skid Row with the youth group. And I was asked to preach a sermon to, it was about a room this size of about this many people of, of homeless people. And man, can you imagine what great consolation a text like that is? And you're telling them and they're hearing it like, yeah, the people that made me end up on Skid Row, those that cheated me out of my business or whatever happened to them to get them there. They're thinking, those people are going down and I'm going to be restored to everything I deserve. I'm like, Yeah. And I agree. I'm so excited for that. And, I, and I'm so excited for the fact that I once was lost, but now I'm found. And I was on the outside. I'm on the inside. I was a sinner. And now I'm forgiven. I'm so excited for that great reversal in my own life. And more so to come to this world that the wrongs shall be righted in due time. I'm very excited for that too. But Jesus did not come just to reshuffle the cards. He came to change the game. Do you hear what I'm saying? He didn't come just to say, okay, now the poor have a chance to oppress the rich because it gets reversed. He didn't come just to shuffle the deck. He came to kick it out and start a new game. What game is that? It's a terrifying game. Are you ready? Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Okay, so this whole reversal thing's like, yes, I'm going to get my enemy. Nope, he's just check yourself a second. Love your enemy. What kind of a reversal is this? <laughs> Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And when I got to this part, uh, it's good. Oh, you can tell it's getting a little bit more intense. Some of them are like, yeah, amen. I'm like, do you really know what I'm saying? In verse 32, uh, it just keeps going. If, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, as well as the grateful and the righteous. So verse 36, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive And you will be forgiven. That is hard when you've been on the wrong end of exclusion. And it was willful by these mean people to make you a misfit, to keep you on the outside. And Jesus is saying, 
do not take an opportunity to start your own circle and make them feel bad either. Rather, go and forgive them. That's, that's not what the Sneetches did. You remember what the Sneetches did? When Fix It Up, Chappie McBean, whatever his name was, when he shows up, he offers the, the Sneetches without stars to get stars so they can feel special too. Well, the, the ones with stars and the, these other ones didn't have the ones that didn't have stars now have stars. We all have stars. This is a problem. We got to be more special now. So they go and take off their stars. And now the off stars ones are the special ones. And then they take off their stars. And the whole thing gets so confusing. It's all about we got to make you still feel excluded. And we often get our chance to feel included. And we want to return the favor and make those that made us feel excluded now feel excluded. Or somehow that we arrived to the better club. This cluster of puzzle pieces is better than that cluster. Because you're just a cat. In fact, you don't even know if you're a cat or a skunk. We're a tree. So forgive is the message, forgiveness. It's very hard. But listen, listen, when I don't forgive others, I am neither for them, nor do I give them the love of God. When I don't forgive, I'm neither for them, nor do I give them the love of God. In other words, I am an exclusionist. When I don't forgive, I might still be on the outside or I might be on the inside. It doesn't matter where I am. If I don't forgive, I am willfully excluding the one I'm not forgiving. So Jesus is calling us to be a forgiving people. That is synonymous with an inclusive people who love the least, last, and lost. So this is our final words. I told you that was a fast term on the mount, right? (laughs) Jesus told Peter when they went out to the deep... To let down your nets. So I'm going to ask you tonight, as we're about to take communion, and the worship team can come up with right now. I'm going to ask you tonight to let down your net. You know, the net that you're using to tie people up in unforgiveness, or to keep them away from you, to let that net go. Some of us are holding on so much to things that have hurt us or people that we want to exact revenge with. But you will never catch a single fish as long as you hold on to that net. You have to let your net down. Yes, it will get dirty. You've been trying to keep it clean. Yes, it might break and snap. You've been trying to keep it intact. But our walls have to crumble before... We become connected with others.